Hey, just a quick note before we start. If you haven't listened to the part one of this two-part episode on the Sufi way and Sufi meditation with Tom Brashad, then make sure you go back and listen to episode 59. That's part one of this episode. And listen to that first, and then this episode will make complete sense. Welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and health. And this week, we continue on from our previous episode on Sufi meditation. So this is part two of my interview with aboutmeditation.com co-founder Tom Bershad. And if you remember in the first episode, Tom really laid out the goal of the Sufi way and Sufi meditation a path that Tom has been practicing for over 20 years, Tom himself having been a meditator for almost 40 years, or I think maybe even more than that. But this week, Tom tells the extraordinary story of his visit to the tomb of Rumi, who is potentially the greatest Sufi teacher to have ever walked on the earth. And it is really an amazing story. Tom also shares some more details about how to actually practice Sufi meditation. So this is a great episode. It's an exciting follow-up to last week. So without any delay, I hope you enjoy the show. And just again, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, I encourage you to go back because this episode really builds on the previous one. Okay, great. Enjoy. I'd love to transition and shift a little bit more into the specific processes and practices in starting to embody the way. Sure. And also I'd like to, whether before or after, but I'd like to hear a little bit more of what kind of changes did you start to see in your life as you embrace the Sufi way? What were, what were some, what are some stories that reflect the impact that this path started to have in your life or, or, or the, the effect you started to have outwardly once you embrace the way. Sure. Um, so either way, if, if you want to share some stories or go into the practices first, either way. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll share uh, one sort of uh, story that will lead, I think, into a good understanding of the practice. As I mentioned to you, in my somewhere in my 30s, uh, I started to read a, a lot of books by a fellow named Idris Shah, and uh, that's S-H-A-H, Idris Shah. And uh, Shah was a very prolific writer. He wrote you know, 35 or 40 books over the course of his life. A number of them contain what are called teaching stories, which we can talk a little bit about in a minute. But to a large degree, what Shah was trying to do was to create a context in the West for the Sufi understanding of the world. And he realized that people of the West were not necessarily or particularly interested in becoming Muslims or changing their religion, but they were looking for a path that would actually uh, involve the kinds of cultural values that we have to begin with and to build upon those. So Hmm. that was sort of Shah's mission, if you will. And so I started reading a lot of books by him and was I, it just had they had the ring of truth. I, I don't know how else to say that, but it's 
like as I read what he was writing, every you know more and more I would just say, oh, this this makes more and more sense to me. This just feels more and more right. It just had the ring of truth. Yeah. So that was sort of my orientation to the Sufi way, if you will, at that point. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the one of the uh, first things that you have to do if you want to become part of the Sufi way is to find a living teacher. So naturally, I wanted to meet Shah. I wanted to connect with him personally. And there was a uh, place to write, which I did. So I did write to Shah and uh, received some, uh, re- some replies from his secretary. But in effect, within a couple of years of me trying to attempt making contact, he died <laughs> very, wow. su- very suddenly. And another aspect of the Sufi tradition is that when a teacher dies, whatever their teaching context may be at that point, it's sort of rolled up and and put aside because without a living teacher, there's really no path. And so I realized at that point that I was sort of back to square one. And mm. uh, the only thing that you can do is to try to find another teacher. So I did spend a few years looking for another teacher, and I ultimately came across uh, Ali Dede, who is uh, the current teacher that I'm working with in the Sufi way. And uh, he was, in his earlier days, a very large disciple and also became a teacher of Shah's uh, work. And in a sense, he is one of those people that was connected to that tradition. So I, I connected with him. And he initially uh, gave me certain things to focus on, some some teaching stories to read and to to respond to. Uh, but it was all sort of very intellectual and, to a large extent, not very interesting <laughs> to me. Hmm. But I would say within about three months of making contact, he invited me to come and visit him where he lives in Mexico. So I did. I, I went, flew down and... and uh, was received by uh, his wife and, and, and he and also another student from the United States. It's just the four of us. And we spent about a week in his house. And that was my first experience of being around someone who had such a high level of energy that you just couldn't help but be swept up by it, um, mm. by being in his presence. But one of the experiences that I had there is he took us to one of the old Mayan areas which I discovered later on are are sort of like power spots. They have a tremendous amount of, whether it's uh, natural geophysical energy or whether because of the temples that were built there, they kind of generate a tremendous amount of energy. But he took us to visit with one of these and he asked that we walk around the uh, the grounds and then report back to him. And truthfully, at the time, I didn't experienced much of anything. I just felt like I was in sort of an ancient ruin and I really didn't perceive anything that interesting. So he was, you know, very uh, nonchalant about the whole thing. And that, you know, the week sort of went to, came to a close. When I left Mexico and got back to the United States, that's when I actually biggest uh, noticed the biggest uh, change because I had a very clear before and after. And while I was with him, I felt somewhat swept away by the energy, but it was remarkable upon coming home how different I felt about everything in my life. And mm. there wasn't anything 
that we really talked about. I mean, most of most of the time that we talked together was really more about you know typical what do we do and you know what kind of family you know do we have just sort of the typical things that people would do that spend time with each other. There was not much that was really very mystical or very uh, intellectually interesting. So it was kind of somewhat impactful to me that just upon returning home, I noticed a very distinct change in my whole experience of life and my personal connection with energy. Can I ask you a question about that, Tom? What, what, like when you say it was a real shift in your relationship to life, can you give, give some examples of that? Sure. Well, I think uh, you alluded to this earlier. One of the things that became very apparent was that in meditation, I think it's a universal experience. We all get to that sort of quiet, calm place within within us. And typically, as a beginning meditator, you may have that experience while you're in meditation. But as you progress in meditation, you'll find that you're, there's always a part of your attention or awareness that seems to have that aspect. It's It just becomes sort of a more uh, pronounced part of your overall experience. And uh, I would say that that was one of the more profound changes is that I felt this deep, deep peace and silence at the root of my being. Mm. No matter where I was and what I was doing, it was just palpable. I also felt just incredibly energized and uh, people would even say to me, wow, you know, you look you know, so healthy. You're almost glowing with health. So there was actually not just a, an inner component, but there was actually a physical component that other people could see. And uh, it really, uh, it was just such an obvious difference from what I had experienced before I had left for that trip. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so two questions. What is meditation like in the Sufi way? So that's my first question. Sure. And then the second question is, I know there's a great significance in the Sufi way to visiting the tomb of Rumi. I wanted to ask as the, the, sure. the second question, what is that? And can you share your own experience of that? Okay. Did you want to address the practices? Yes. Okay. So we'll, we'll start with that. I think for, for one thing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of different orders within the Sufi tradition. I think there are literally hundreds of different orders, and they've all been started by significant teachers of the past. So depending on the country, the time period, uh, the language spoken, and so forth, different teachers at different times, different places have had their own particular spin on the way that uh, practices are taught and the actual types of practices. So uh, in my particular case, being a Westerner and sort of somewhat of an intellectually oriented type of person, mm. uh, my particular practices within the Sufi way are very quiet, uh, probably more akin to what people would normally associate with meditation. I, I do sit silently. Uh, I do re repeat certain sounds which people could interpret as mantras. And uh, I use breathing techniques uh, similar to yoga where breath is uh, managed and 
uh, handled in, in certain ways that enhance one's awareness. So there is a fairly similar look and feel to the Sufi practices in, in that respect. Yeah. I'm not really uh, comfortable going into the actual specifics because those are things that are typically reserved for people who are initiated into the tradition. Yeah. But, you know, there are plenty of books out there by people who have gone through this. Uh, if you really wanted to find more specific information, I'm sure it's out there. One of the more uh, well-known Sufi orders is probably known in a lot of people's minds worldwide are the whirling dervishes. And uh, that's an order that was actually started by uh, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, or, you know, Rumi as we call him in the West. And he's referred to as Mevlana in Turkey, where his, his tomb is. Uh, Rumi lived in 11th century. Sorry, one second, Tom. I want us to fully go into the, this, but before we do, so with the just jumping quickly back to the practices, can you just then say like with the practices that you do do, so for example, do you meditate once or twice a day? How long, for how long? Sure. And, you know, just a little bit about that. Of course. Well, in my particular practice, I do perform what you could call a meditation twice a day. Mm -hmm. There are several different parts to that practice, so it's not like sitting and doing the same thing for half an hour or an hour at a time. There are actually several different uh, parts to it, and the direction of it is, you know, we start with some breathing and some repetition of mantras, and this is sort of a quieting of the body, a quieting of the mind, and we then move into a practice where different aspects of our energy bodies, and uh, energy bodies are sort of a concept that uh, we haven't really discussed yet, but this really just comes from the belief that we not only have a physical body, but we also have an energy component that is able to function in these higher levels of reality. And that part of the practice of the Sufi practice, or part of the reason for the Sufi practices in this direction is to energize and uh, bring more and more life force and energy into those parts of our being, which normally are latent. And by doing so, that allows you and sets up the possibility for having higher levels of awareness and experience. Hmm. So the practice session kind of goes from more of a physical and mental type of orientation to gradually, by the end of the practice, you're sitting in pure awareness and calmness and unity. And the entire session is really designed to end in that way uh, with the goal being that you take that peace into your life as you leave the meditation practice. So that, That's really, that's very clear. That's helpful. And the reason that we do it twice a day is that, you know, in the morning we sort of brush off all the sleep and all the, uh, the things of, of the night uh, and kind of prepare ourselves for the day. And then we go out and sort of do battle with our, <laughs> our work and our, our relationships and all the things that we do uh, in our life. And then we come home and once again clean up all the debris and clarify our connection once again to source so that you always have that process of 
cleaning and going into life, cleaning, going into life, and it's just done on a daily basis. Mm. Great, thank you. Sure. So back to, back to uh, to Rumi. Um, yeah, I think you know Rumi is significant for a number of reasons. One, his fame is is far and wide, and part of the reason for that is he was was clearly uh, a great human being. He was uh, he's known as a poet. He's known as a great teacher. Uh, his poetry, I think, is is renowned, not just in Eastern regions, but also in the West. There are many people who think that Rumi is one of the greatest poets ever to live. In the inner sense, Rumi is considered uh, by the Sufis to be the greatest teacher that's that's mm-hmm. ever lived. And uh, as such, he sort of sits on top of a chain of transmission that continues to this day. Now, his particular order, the whirling, the, you know, people refer to them as the whirling dervishes. They're actually Mevlevi is the, the proper term for it. Uh, he's referred to as Mevlana, and the orders known as the Mevlevi dervishes, uh, they still exist, and particularly in Turkey and other parts of the world, and you may even be able to see them. So in some cases, they perform so that people can come and see them. But that particular order was started in the 11th century by Rumi really as a uh, prescription for the people of that particular time and place. So I think the takeaway is that not everybody either wants to or needs to whirl in order to experience uh, higher states. In fact, the, the vast majority of Dervishes, which is the term for people on the Sufi way, the the uh, vast majority of dervishes do, do not practice a dance or whirling technique, although many of them do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of a historical aspect of Rumi. He was also a departure from the tradition or orthodoxy of the time. Up until Rumi, Sufis of the East would not take students who are outside of the Islamic tradition. But uh, Rumi was one of the first to actually teach anyone, and he had Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians. He had literally thousands of uh, students around him, and he welcomed all of them, and it was never a requirement that they become a Muslim. And it's one of the reasons why he was uh, always sort of getting in trouble with the authorities of the time. But being that he was also a, a somewhat of a genius, uh, he had been trained in the legal aspects of uh, the Quran and sort of knew all of the arguments to convince people to think otherwise. Uh, and also by the demonstration of his powers, I mean, there are a lot of stories about Rumi that are almost like reading fairy tales. And... Uh, miracles and things that couldn't have happened naturally are attributed to Rumi in in great quantity. Whether you choose to believe in them or not, I guess, is up to the individual. But nonetheless, he was renowned at being, uh, you know, not just a great man, but also having these really profound spiritual powers. Got it. Yeah. So there is sort of a tradition in the Sufi way that at some point you make your way to visit his tomb and not so much in an ex- that it's important in an external sense, but it, as it is that his spirit is still present 
and that his tomb is one of those places where you can, can you can make that connection to his spirit. So uh, there is a a time where most people are asked by their teachers to travel to Turkey to Konya where his tomb is, and to actually uh, sort of pay respects and to experience the energy of his being and his his spirit, which mm. still are believed to reside there. So that would be the significance of it. Um, yeah. If you like, I can share a an experience I had personally of that. Uh, that'd be great. Yes, please. So I think at the time, maybe I'd been working with my teacher for about six or seven years when he started to bring up the idea of going to Turkey. And having never been to Turkey uh, before, it was a little bit intimidating, the idea of traveling there uh, by myself. So he suggested that I look into it and see, you know, see what I can discover. And as it turned out, I, a very good friend of mine had been born in Turkey, although he had lived in the United States for something like 35 years. He was Turkish and spoke the language and actually enjoyed going to Turkey a couple times a year and was thrilled to find out that I had an interest in going and offered to take me and to be sort of my guide there and to inter- you know, act as an interpreter and sort of show me the, the, uh, the country. Yeah. So it just sort of coincided uh, very nicely that my friend Sammy was willing to go with me. So the two of us went off and uh, we did many things. And the, you know, one of the more interesting uh, experiences that I had was going to the tomb of Rumi. And I really had only seen some pictures of it. I really didn't know what to expect. But uh, I was sort of surprised that when I arrived there, uh, it was actually uh, enclosed in a very large building with a big medieval wall around it. It was almost like a castle, a very huge campus with numerous buildings uh, inside the walls. And the main hall, which is where the dervishes would practice, had an area where his his tomb was kind of behind a, a gate or a fence almost. And this was a kind of place that was very touristic, which I didn't realize or I didn't know in advance. And there were like literally busloads of people you know, Japanese people coming off and ch- school children and people from all over the world, many people from the, the local uh, area as well that were coming to pay their respects. So just imagine sort of like, you know, Grand Central Terminal in New York. Uh, it almost gives you sort of an idea of the of the kind of chaos and, yeah. you know, noise and sort of flashes going off with people taking pictures and yelling out to each other. So it was not exactly what I what I would have expected, which I thought it would be a very sort of solemn, very sort of sacred kind of place. It was really the opposite. And my teacher had given me some very specific instructions to close my eyes and to repeat a certain phrase over and over. And after each repetition to turn 90 degrees to the left. So, you know, to hold my hands out as though I was receiving grace and to do this sort of in, inside uh, chanting and then turn to the left 90 degrees over and over again. And, he, and I said, well, how long should I do that? He said, just do it as long as you feel that you would like to. So here I was in the middle of this giant sort of terminal with hundreds of people <laughs> walking by and I was now being 
asked to do something which I thought would be would look sort of silly, you know, compared to what else was going on around me. So I definitely felt kind of like somewhat reluctant to do this. But after a few minutes, I just sort of worked up the courage. I said, well, you know, I've traveled all this way and I'll probably never see any of these people again. <laughs> so I started to to do this inward practice and the, this turning with my eyes completely closed and my my hands held to, as though to receive grace. And gradually over the next few minutes, I realized that it was getting quieter and quieter. And at one point, it just became like just completely silent. And I was totally curious about what was going on. And I opened my eyes. And at that point, there were probably at least 200 people all around me. I was sort of embedded in this large group of people that were all doing the same thing. Hmm. And it was like we had, it was it's sort of like that wave that they do in the, you know, in the, in the sports stadiums. It was like I had started a wave and all the yeah. other people said, well, if he's doing it, I guess I can do it too. And this went on for a good hour or so. I just stood there with uh, everyone and, you know, people kind of came and went. But the entire place literally just changed. There was, it was quiet. It was respectful. It was, it was a deeply spiritual experience, and I think that um, for me, that was kind of like a message, and it had a lot of deep personal meaning for me to to, to have that particular experience. And uh, the interesting thing was that uh, after I stopped, I went, I sort of was there for about an hour or so, and after I stopped, within about a minute or two, the entire situation went right back to what it was before I got there. It was wow! It was just like a miraculous interlude and the interesting thing is i i went there three days in a row in the morning and on all three days i had the exact same experience of coming into chaos finding this deep uh spiritual peace and connection with all these other people who also began to practice with me and then as soon as i left things kind of went back to the way they were before so i think there's a i think there's sort of a message in there (laughs) <laughs> but I'll leave it. To, I'll leave. I'll leave it to the listener to interpret that for themselves. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Well, that's fantastic. So, Tom, this has been great. Before we wrap up, do you want to share any any last things about the Sufi way? You know, one of the things that I would would like to just say is that uh, when I first started my path and seeking back in my teens and early 20s, I had a very sort of fantastical, uh, magical kind of way of thinking about this, uh, you know, sort of this, you know, this, this sort of miracles and the kind of superpowers that great teachers and masters have supposedly had over the years, you know, including some of the things I was referring to about Rumi. And I think I started out with my focus being on those kinds of things. But as I have practiced the Sufi way and as I've you know, become familiar more and more with the people of that tradition as well as others, I think that you know, what I realized that it's, it's really about um, making our lives better. It's, it's, uh, it's, not about, it's not an escape. It's not something that takes us away from all of, all of the uh, trials and tribulations of life I think things still happen to us. We still have difficulties, but I think it's really learning to be uh, calm and graceful in the in the 
context of chaos around us. And I think that that's really what the uh, Sufi way and uh, the meditation practices and all of the things that uh, I have learned that I think that's the most important point is, is learning how to be a better human being, a, be, a better person in my own life uh, as opposed to anything else. So that's, that's great. What, if someone wants to learn more about the Sufi way, do you have any recommendations, starting points? Well, if, if you're a person of the West and you're not particularly interested in uh, religious or ceremonial trappings and things of that nature and you, you just want to learn more about the purity of the path, I would say a good place to start would be to still read the works of Idris Shah. We didn't talk about the teaching stories, but the Sufis teach through stories as analogies. Uh, so I would recommend that if you were to read any or all of his books to start with, that that would be a great place to start. Hmm. Uh, if you want to be connected with a teacher, then perhaps if people want to contact me, I could put them in touch with my, my teacher or direct them to other people that may be closer to where they live or where they feel comfortable traveling to. Yeah. Well, fantastic. And I will put a link, everyone in the show notes, for how to reach out to Tom to do that. And then also put links in the show notes for uh, the writings of Idris Shah. And great. So, Tom, thank you so much. Thank you, Morgan. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. I hope you enjoyed my interview with AboutMeditation.com co-founder Tom Bershad. I love that interview and I love that story about Rumi. It's so, so powerful. And if you want to follow up, if you want to connect with Tom, just head on over to our website, AboutMeditation.com, and you can use the contact form there to write to Tom. And for sure, check out the show notes. We've got some interesting links there on some Sufi writings. And then also, if you enjoyed today's show, if you are a regular listener and you get a lot out of this podcast, one big way that you can help us, one way that you can help other meditators discover our show is by giving us a rating and a review over in iTunes. And you can do that by going to aboutmeditation.com forward slash iTunes. And that is a great way to support us. Also, if you head on over to our site to do that, don't miss out. We have some free resources there called Meditation for Life, and that includes two guided meditations and a three-part meditation seminar. So check that out. I think you'll like it. And then finally, let's end with a quote. And of course, we need to end with a quote from the master, the poet, Rumi. And he says, out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. <laughs>